Amen. Has anybody here ever heard of a suicide? Um, I, don't, I don't think so. This, that was a term that was coined by my old pastor. Um, but he, but there's some people who are, are affiliated with Word of Life and maybe heard him use that word before uh, Ray Pritchard. So, um, but a suicide. A suicide is the act of um, killing relationships by seeing the worst in others. It's the act of killing relationships by assuming the worst in others. And so uh, we, we notice um, a suicide uh, takes a lot of forms. It, maybe it's found in a lot of statements. Um, maybe uh, we say to ourselves uh, or say to someone else, he didn't call back, so he must not want to talk to me. Or um, I think she's trying to ignore me. Or they never hire people like me. Or the church is so unfriendly. I hope you've never heard that one here. <laughs> um, how could he be a Christian and act like that? He's probably a jerk at home too. <laughs> that one might be one that some have heard here, huh? I, I don't know why, but I, but I just don't like him. She's so full of herself. You can't trust someone who's dressed like that. And then finally, uh, he's a hypocrite. He's a hypocrite. Well, uh, a suicide. That's, that's where we get ourselves into danger, right? Where we assume things about other people that aren't true, and then we end up killing relationships as a result of it. Well, this book, if you want to understand the book of John, you have to understand that it's full of misunderstandings about Jesus. Uh, people are, are constantly misunderstanding him. They're constantly misunderstanding his message. And we understand from that that the, the things of God must be discerned by the Spirit of God. And we see this very, very clearly. The, the people of Israel misunderstood Jesus. For instance, um, Jesus said in, in chapter 2 of John, he said, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. Uh, the, the Jews then responded by saying, well, it took 46 years to rebuild this temple. How can you possibly raise it up in three days? And, and uh, they didn't understand that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus, not a physical structure. Building becomes now the meeting place between God and man. Or another example took place in chapter 3. Jesus meets with this man. His name is Nicodemus. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, uh, unless a man be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And uh, Nicodemus said to the Lord, he said, does that, does that mean that uh, I'm going to have to go back into my mother's womb and be born again? Came up with this absurd idea of what Jesus meant. And no, Jesus was just pointing out that we're all born dead spiritually. And in order to ha for us to have a relationship with God, in order for us to have spiritual life, God must give it to us by the power of his Holy Spirit. He regenerates us. He makes us born again. He makes us new. He makes us a new crea creation. He takes that dead part of us and he makes it alive. And that's, that's what it means to be born again. Um, or you have the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus offered her living water. And she said, you know, we don't have anything that goes deep enough in this well to dig out water like that. 
And uh, can you, she says, can you give me some of that water? And, and, and Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, namely the water in the well. But, um, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we all know the story. We all know the story that eventually this woman comes into an understanding of the truth, that she comes to know the Lord, that he radically transforms her life and fills her with joy like she's never experienced before. And we all remember the story of Nicodemus, how Nicodemus didn't understand Jesus at first, but then Nicodemus embraced Jesus. And when everybody ran away from Jesus, including his disciples, Nicodemus was there to bury his body. And we also see that so many of the Jewish people that didn't understand Jesus teaching on the temple understood later when they had a relationship with God through Christ that he is the true temple and they began to worship him anywhere other believers were gathered together to worship him. And so um, we notice that this then became uh, this misunderstanding that they had over and over again throughout the book. You can, you, can, you can trace the progression of that. Well, we see this here. We see this here. Um, the disciples misunderstood Jesus. The disciples misunderstood Jesus. And so I'd like you to look in your Bibles with me to John 12, uh, beginning with 12. It says this, the next day the large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That, by the way, is a prophecy about the Messiah from Zechariah 9.9. So Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. And one of the things, when we read the Old Testament, we have to look for the ways that the prophecies that were given find their fulfillment in Christ. And that's exactly what happens here. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Notice the same idea. People are misunderstanding Jesus. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Well, what, was the, what were the disciples assuming, Jesus' disciples, and also the crowds assuming about Jesus in this instance, in this context, on the day of his triumphal entry? Well, um, they, were, they were assuming that Jesus was coming to bring a new political kingdom. That's what motivated them. That's why they were there that day. You have to remember that the people of Israel were under the thumb of the Romans. And the Romans had oppressed them. And throughout Israel's history, they had been oppressed by so many different people groups. Israel had not only been oppressed by the Romans, they had been oppressed by the the Syrians. They had been oppressed by the Greeks. They had been oppressed by the Babylonians. They had been oppressed by the Persians. They had been oppressed by the Egyptians, they had been oppressed by the Philistines, they had been oppressed throughout their history over and over again, and God continually raised up a deliverer for them. And you might remember some of the names of the deliverers that God gave them. He gave them people like Moses and Joshua and Samson and uh, David, and he gave, gave them uh, figures like... Um, like um, Nehemiah, and he gave them uh, people throughout their history who were, were these delivering figures who brought them out of oppression and ushered them into 
times of new freedom and hope and life. And they were looking for this again, and they were waiting for the Messiah to come. They believed that he was the ultimate liberator, the ultimate political king. And so we see all of this wrapped up in this story, and we we know that this was their assumptions because remember there's a story in Matthew chapter 20 where James and John, their mother, went to Jesus and they said to Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can you give my sons the favored positions on your left and on your right? Well, what she wanted was for her sons to have a place of favor when Jesus came into a political kingdom, when Jesus as Messiah would come and reign over the nations and rule over the world. And finally, this golden age would be ushered in with Christ seated and reigning. And they wanted this and they wanted a position of status and political power within that new kingdom. We know that was the heartbeat of the disciples. They didn't understand Jesus yet and what he was doing yet. And we also know that that was the desire of the crowds. Well, how can we tell that about the crowds? Well, one of the things that we know is that the crowds wanted a great divider. They wanted a great divider. Um, palm branches were symbolic. Now, today we know these palm branches are symbolic of what? Only the peace that Christ can bring to the world. But they looked at palm branches as symbolic of revolution and war. They looked at palm branches as symbolic of revolution and war. Uh, there was a, 150 years before these events took place, Israel was under the uh, thumb of Syria, and they were, they were bad to Israel. They were bad to Israel. In fact, this one guy, his name was Antiochus Epiphanes. He wanted to desecrate the temple, and, and it's hard to imagine, hard to imagine that somebody could be this ruthless, this cruel, this nasty, and, and he, tr- he mistreated the people, but, but he decided that he would make a mockery of Israel's faith by going into the temple and sacrificing a pig on the altar. Well, this threw the nation into uh, revolution, and somehow, against overwhelming odds, Israel ended up defeating the Syrians, and Israel was then able to establish a nation, and when Simon Maccabee, a leader of that revolution, coined, or minted coins after that, the coins had palm branches stamped on them. And the palm branches were symbolic of the revolution that took place that freed the people from tyranny. And so when the people took palm branches and they laid them before Jesus, what they were actually calling on Jesus to do was to be a political liberator. They wanted a king who would sit on the throne, who would defeat their enemies, subdue the nations, and rule the earth. That's what they longed for. That's what they looked for in Jesus, and ultimately what they wanted truly was a great divider. Now, in order to understand this text, we have to, we have to know the, kind, the context of the situation. The, 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 it, Jerusalem was a, was, a, was a powder keg at this point. Now you have the Passover, and remember, the Passover is symbolic of, of God passing over the people of Israel and punishing the nation of, of Egypt for Uh, 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 putting Israel under their thumb. And so God, in his mercy and grace, during that time of Passover, he brought the children of Israel out of Egypt into the promised land and rescued them. So Passover itself has these connotations of wanting to be relieved of, of their suffering and released from oppression, and you had the city swell. Uh, um, uh, an ancient historian, his name is Josephus, estimated that there were 2.7 million people who would come together during Passover in Jerusalem. 
More conservative estimates put it probably around a million. We're not sure which it is, but I don't know if you've ever been in a crowd with a million people or more. I have on one occasion. I have on one occasion. This was on the uh, lakefront in Chicago. I think it was like on a, on a, on a special, for some reason, it was some kind of special uh, 4th of July celebration. And there were estimated apparently a million people at this particular event. And I've never seen so many people in all my life in one place. And as soon as everything was over, the people left the shoreline and they moved into the city. Every road was shut down. You could not get a train. The whole city came to a crippling halt. And, and that city is way bigger than what you would have in the vicinity of Jerusalem at the time. So imagine a million people all in one place that's not really built to handle a million people all in one place. And you can imagine people coming in there with religious fervor and, and, uh, and they were under oppression and their minds were back uh, uh, thinking about the exodus and how God delivered his people and oh, how their hearts longed for freedom. And so Jesus began to make his way from the Mount of Olives to the city. And uh, as he approached, they began to shout, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You can see that. You can see all the connotations there, all the, the political liberation that they're longing for. The word Hosanna means to save now, save now. Now, um, why did they think that Jesus was going to lead them out of this oppression? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons, but one key catalyzer in this whole event was something that took place with this man named Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He was in the tomb. And Jesus went and he raised him from the dead. Well, it tells us in verse 17 that the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So uh, there were the stories floating around how Jesus has raised the dead, and, and that would have been in Jerusalem and Judea, and then there were other stories floating around how Jesus had given sight to the blind, he'd given hearing to the deaf, he, he healed the, the leper, and to be a leper, it basically people assumed that you had almost an impossible disease to ever overcome, you were like a dead man walking, and he healed the leper, he had done all of these things. Well, certainly if one can, who can speak as powerfully as Jesus and one is as brilliant as Jesus and one who can confound all of the people with all the highfalutin degrees around him, they understood that, that this is the one who could be their liberator. I don't know how many of you have ever played the game Medic. Anybody play Medic? Raise your hand if you played Medic. Uh, I think a lot of our kids should raise their hands because they, they played Medic. Yeah, I see them now. Now, um, so Medic is a game that you play in dodgeball. And, um, and the way it works is that normally you remember dodgeball, you get hit or somebody catches a ball you throw, you have to leave the, the playing field. It's almost like you're, you're, you're dead. I, I, don't, I hate to use that word, but that's, that's, that's the word I'm going to use right now. Okay, so you're basically dead. Somebody catches a ball or you throw it, you get, or somebody throws it and they hit you and, and it doesn't bounce on the floor first. We don't have to explain all the rules. Okay, so, um, but, in, but in Medic, this has kind of got a cool twist on the game. Each team picks a particular person who is now the secret Medic. And each team tries to keep try to, tries to keep the other team from figuring out who it is. And so if somebody gets hit with a ball and they go down, and they're kind of, quote-unquote, dead, 
Then you have the, then you have the medic who's there in the, lurking in the background. And the medic runs up and tags the person who's down, and now they're suddenly back in the game. Imagine having a political ruler who's like that, a general who's like that. You go into battle, you get an you you arrow right through your heart, and you fall there uh, down right on the battlefield, and then all of a sudden, Jesus comes up. There you go. Jesus says, get up, and you get out, and you just kind of pull that thing right out of there and throw it on the ground, and you keep fighting. Somebody lobs a rock at you, it hits you in the eye, you're blind. Jesus just comes and heals your eyesight. Somebody comes and with a sword lops off your ear, Jesus picks your ear up off the ground and puts it right back on your head, you go on your way. Now, that'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? Having a leader like that, that's what they wanted. They wanted a political leader like that. One who could speak, who could command people's attention, who could draw crowds. That's what they wanted. They wanted a political leader. And they couldn't have misunderstood what Jesus was after more. In fact, Jesus reveals this. As we know from the story, when it's time for him to ride the animal into the city, he chooses a donkey. Well, what's the significance of choosing a donkey? Well, a donkey is a, an animal that a, that a king would ride who's coming in peace. If a king was coming to make war, what would he ride? He'd ride a war horse, right? But in this case, he's riding a donkey. And the reality is what this text is teaching us. This text is teaching us this. Only Christ makes it possible to have peace with God and peace with one another. Only Christ makes it possible for us to have peace with God and peace with one another. There are two statements in this text that are extremely important. One is on the lips of the Pharisees, and one is on the lips of some Greeks who came to see Jesus. The first one, on the lips of the Pharisees, uh, they say to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. That's verse 19. And then we see another statement that is made by some Greeks in verse 21. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Well, There are two things that that we can take from this passage. Number one, only Christ can unite God's people. Only Christ can unite God's people. There are lots of rivalries. You know, we love to hate, right? Lots of rivalries. When we moved here, we moved here in 2004, before the 2004 World Series. And and I don't think that there was a more hated creature in this world than, what what do you think? A Yankees fan. Yeah. I don't think there's a more hated creature on the face of the earth. As an outsider coming here into this environment, that was interesting. All these rivalries. Or um, maybe if you're a Bruins fan, uh, who's the mortal enemy? Canadians, yes. Canadians. Or um, Celtics. Lakers. It doesn't take you guys any time to figure out who your (laughs) mortal enemies are. Okay, well, the next one is a, is a little bit harder. I, I had to really scratch my head as I was thinking of this. Um, the Patriots. I hear Jets. Everyone else? Well, you know, you know last, in the last service, you know what somebody shouted? Pittsburgh Steelers. I was very offended. I just want you to know, very offended... And so I just had to say, it must be Tampa Bay. (laughs) Well, 
Um, the reality is, is that hatred is as old as humanity itself. It's as old as humanity itself. Um, remember, in the garden, Adam and Eve, God created Adam and Eve to live in right relationship with himself. And they rebelled against God. And once they rebelled against God, they turned against God, they turned against each other, and we see it graphically illustrated in their two sons, their first two sons, Cain and Abel. Their oldest was Cain, and what did he do? He killed his brother, Abel. We see this, um, we, we see this, this, uh, this act that just that spread like gangrene to all humanity, this rebellion against God, and it turned people against one another. In fact, we read in Romans 5.12, it puts it this way. It puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Why? Because all sin. All sin in Adam. And so we have a nature. We have a sin nature that we carry into the world, and it turns us against God, and it turns us against one another. Why do um, kids bully other kids at school? Well, maybe we say that kid was raised in a rough home. And maybe that's why that kid is bullying another kid. That may be true, but at the root of it is sin. Or um, why do scam artists take advantage of other people? You ever see any of the documentaries out there about people? Very often, uh, people living in other countries out of the out of the reach of American law who, who con people, particularly elderly people, into giving them their life savings? Saying, what in the world? Why would they, why would they do that? How can they, have, how can they live with themselves after doing that? And, well, some people will say, you know, they live in a poor country, and that's all they know what to do. Well, the reality is, is that it's sin. It's sin. Or um, why do governments oppress their own people? Well, at the heart of it, it might be because the governments are saying they want to keep order and maintain uh, the status quo, but in the reality, it is sin. It is sin at the root of it. Or, or why do some people inflame tension and enjoy when people tear each other apart? Well, the answer is simple. It is sin. Sin is the root cause of every issue, of every problem that we have on the face of the earth. And Jesus' purpose, Jesus' reason, reason for coming was to eradicate that. So that we could live in union with one another, that we could love one another, but most of all, that we can live in right relationship with God. The solution to all of the problems that we face is Christ. You know, so often we, we try to... Um, we think that the solution to our problems is in public policy. We think that the solutions to our problems are found in, in, um, in, in uh, social activism and politics and all of these things. But think about it. We've had, the, we've had the UN around for so long, and we still have wars over the face of the earth. We still have genocide. We still have people who hate each other. We, we do everything that we can to keep a lid on the issues and problems of this world, but, but no matter how, tr how hard we try, we, we just can't do it. 
We, we, have, the, we have the finest, the best uh, medical system in all the world right here in Boston, yet, yet we can't stop one microscopic, microscopic little germ from infecting all kinds of people and, and, and leading to death. We, 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 we cannot stop those things. We are powerless to do it because there is a problem, there is an issue that runs much deeper than politics, it runs much deeper than any other thing, and that's an issue of sin. It's a heart problem, and only Jesus can repair that. The gospel is the only hope for the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came to reconcile rebellious people to God so that through that relationship we might truly live and as a result of that relationship we will live in unity and in, and in right relationship with other people. But it begins in that vertical relationship with him and once he transforms us it begins to transform everything around us. We notice here that as the Pharisees looked upon Jesus and they saw the crowds that were following him, they were utterly, they were completely, they were totally depressed. They see this massive crowd and know that their power is slipping away. They know that their power is slipping away. And so we read in verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Look, the whole world has gone after him. What do we see in that? We see that Jesus is attractive. There's something, there's something different. There's something beautiful about Jesus. And oh, how we look to the world for all the solutions to all the problems that we have around us when the real solution, the real answer to those problems is, is Jesus Christ. Among those people who were following Jesus, there were Galileans, and Jesus was from Galilee, and they were there, and they saw him perform his miracles, and they heard him preach, and they saw the things that they did, and they were, they were there that day, and they were, they were placing their palm branches before him, and there that day, there were, there were Judeans. Remember, the Judeans were there because, because um, uh, Je Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and he was from Bethany, which wasn't very far from Jerusalem, which is in Judea. There were Judeans there that were in the company. There were also Grecian Jews. These are, these are Jews who make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem during the Passover, and they lived all over the Mediterranean basin, and they are there. He is uniting them. And, and, the, and the religious leaders are absolutely despondent. There was this, there was this thin veil of, 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 of power over the people during that time, there was, this, there was this balance that was there between the religious leaders and the political leaders of Rome and, and uh, even the, the sort of political leader of Israel. And they, 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 were, they were there just trying to keep a lid on things. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes into the midst of it and all the attention of all the people is turned to him and he becomes a threat to them and their power. And so they say, you see that we are gaining nothing. But what do they mean by that comment? Well, one of the beautiful things is that John sets us up beautifully for that statement. In chapter 11, just one chapter before, notice that those who are in the power structure, those who are at the top of the political ladder, were conspiring against Jesus. We see it in John eleven forty-seven to 50. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said... What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are they doing? They're playing politics with Jesus, right? Let's keep going. But, but one of them, Caiaphas, he was the high priest, who was the high priest that year, said to them, 
you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas, Caiaphas, though he was correct that one man should die for the nation, he had no idea the meaning of that death and the significance of that death. He, he had no understanding of, of the importance of this prophecy that he had. One man should die for the whole nation. So from that day on, we read in verse 53, they made plans to put him to death. From that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Why is it that um, we have kings, presidents, prime ministers who oppose Christ? Why has this been the story of history? Oppose Christ and his people. We have nations in the world today that suppress the church brutally, put Christians in prison uh, on a regular basis, and they, they torture them there. Uh, on Wednesdays, you'll see in our prayer points, often we, we put prayer for the persecuted church. It's important that we remember our brothers and sisters who are suffering that way. But the question is, why do these leaders do that? I mean, think about what Jesus taught. Love your neighbor as yourself? What kind of king wouldn't want his subjects to live like that? Or do to others as you would have them do to you? I mean, what's wrong with that? What's so dangerous about that? There was, um, there was a early church father. His name was Tertullian. He was a lawyer. And when the Christians were undergoing severe persecution in Rome, he would write letters defending Christians and Christianity. And he, he wrote, why in the world are you persecuting people who are your best citizens? They obey your laws. They follow your decrees. They work hard. They pay their taxes. They, they, they love their neighbors. Why is it, why is it that, you, that you persecute Christians so much? Why, what is it about Christians that so threatens you? What is it? Well, I think the answer is simple. And this is the one point that kings and presidents and prime ministers and others don't like. And that is, is because Jesus is God, he demands ultimate allegiance. He demands ultimate allegiance from us, and our ultimate allegiance isn't to the state. The state might make rules, the state may, may make laws, but if those rules and laws contradict his rules and laws, we follow him and we don't follow the state. We have, a, we have a king who rules, who reigns above all things, above all nations. He has dominion over every place, over every power, every political leader, whatever it is. He is the one who is sovereign. He is the one who rules. And we stand up to his name. And when he calls us, we go. When he says to jump, we jump. When he says to sit, we sit. When he says to stop, we stop. And it doesn't matter who tells us to go. When he says stop, we stop because we belong to him. That is what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be one who follows him as king. He is our sovereign Lord. He is our leader. He is our hope. He is our life. And that's why he is a threat. But I want you to know, 
Sometimes when we feel threatened and sometimes when we feel frightened, we have a king who cares for us that walks through the the valley of the shadow of death with us, who never forgets us, who never leaves us, who even in the midst of trial and persecution and pain and suffering, he is there in the midst of it. And any of us who have ever walked with him through those kinds of times, we know it full well. We have this picture of Jesus, this picture of Jesus who is the only hope for the world. Only Christ can unite God's people And only Christ can transform, number two, this dysfunctional world. It's hard to know the time span that occurred between verse 19 and 20. Probably uh, verse 20 could have been even a couple of days later. But some Greeks, it tells us, approached Philip. And he asked a simple question. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And you know, that is... That is a, a, a beautiful picture of what Philip's job is, right? It was to show those Greeks Jesus. Now, why is that significant that they're Greeks? It means that they're Gentiles. Who are the ones who have been oppressing Israel? Who are the ones that are hated? It is Gentiles. Yet who is attracted to Jesus? Gentiles. They come to Philip. See, it's in Jesus that, that we can... We can be united. It's in Jesus that, 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 that we can be made one. It's in Jesus that we can be made whole. With all of this hatred that existed in the world, we have, these, we have these Gentiles here who just want to see Jesus. Maybe it occurred after Jesus cleared the temple. You might remember that story. The outer court of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. And, and there were people who really didn't like the Gentiles they were worshiping. So they, so they set up shop there. They had animals there. They had money changers there. It made a lot of noise. And it made it disruptive for the Gentiles to worship Jesus when and there flipped over tables, pulled out a, pulled out a, uh, a whip, and uh, he, he, uh, he, he cried out this, th- that this temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations. Uh, perhaps that's what captured their, their understanding of their eye, but they could see in Jesus one who didn't just love one group of people, but one who loved the whole world. And so they came to Philip and said, Sir, sir, we wish to see Jesus. But it wasn't just Philip's job who then went to Andrew and talked about this. It was, it was also, it's also my job. And it's your job. That the world would see Jesus. The world would see Jesus in us. There's a local church around here and they have a placard placed in the pulpit. Where only the preacher can see it. And it's, it's these words. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. You see, Jesus is the hope of the world. That's, that's, what, that's what, he's the one who captures our heart. Well, we have um, three responses we can make to King Jesus. Three responses as Christians. Number one, number one, trust that God wants what is best for you. Trust what God, that what God wants for you is best for you. Um, and many of you have heard the quote many times before um, from... Um, William Thrasher, Professor, Professor William Thrasher, he said, uh, God's will is exactly what we would want if we only knew better. And that's true. God's will is exactly what we would want if we only knew better. And Jesus said in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You see, as we reflect upon these Gentiles who are there, Jesus understood 
that if he was to save the world, it would require his death. We can only live when things die. Do you know that? Um, how many of you are um, meat lovers? Okay. All right. We've got a lot of hands. Meat lovers. You like beef. You like pork. You like chicken. You like fish. Won't make you any hungrier. Um, you know, in order to live, in order for us to live, something must die, right? I can see you uh, vegetarians making certain assumptions. Oh, you know, for those carnivores, uh, uh, they, something has to die for them to live, and that just isn't right. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that if you're a vegetarian, you have to slay plants, don't you, to live? Um, for anything to live, something must die. And for us to live, it required Jesus' death. But in his death, he made millions, billions live. Think about that for a second. My parents, they, they've got a, they just sold their house, but their old house that they lived in was near the city, and uh, they, they had a postage-sized backyard. It's like one of those backyards that you could hold your breath and cut the whole thing. And, um, but but they, they loved growing things. They had this tomato garden. And, and uh, they, the one year they had a really nice tomato and they thought, we'd like to replicate this tomato. So they took the one tomato. And I guess in a, in a tomato there's like 15 to 60 seeds, roughly. And they took that one tomato. They saved it over the course of the next year. And then when the next year came, they took the seeds from that tomato and planted it in the ground. And they had a bumper crop of tomatoes that year. They had more tomatoes than they had ever had in any other year. And it all came from one tomato. That's what Jesus, that's what Jesus has done for us. You see, in, in order to make us live, he had to die. And not only does he save us, but he saves the whole world. And when we think about him and his love for us and his desire for us, it, we, we need to learn to trust him in all the things that we go through because we know that he loves us and he knows what, what, what he's doing in, a, in our life is for our best and that he has a purpose in it. Second thing we notice here. Second thing we notice here. Trust that he's telling you the truth. Trust that he's telling you the truth. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. You know, this world is alluring that we live in. There is such temptation. And if you are younger, if you are, let's say, in your, in your early teens and you are maybe, I don't know, in your mid to late 20s, you know how alluring the world is. But those of us who have lived a little longer, who have passed through those days, we know how dangerous those years are. Sort of like uh, the world, the way the world dangles before us. You think about um, fish swimming through the water, and there's a, there's a lure in the water, and it's shiny, right? And that fish looks at that shiny lure, and it looks so enticing, and it looks so good. You know, that's what we're like when we're, we don't have God's wisdom. The world is like that shiny lure, and then the moment it comes into the water and we grab hold of it, we get ripped out of our surrounding and crushed. That's what the world wants to do. It wants to crush us. But what Jesus wants to give you is life and life abundant. 
And the only hope of the world is found in Christ. And so, so what he's saying here takes faith. It requires faith. It requires you to trust that he knows what he's doing in your life to say, Lord, I'm going to lay down my life here so that I can live forever with you there. It requires faith. It requires trust. But I want you to know, I want you to know that there is no better life than a life that's found in Jesus. And you will never regret the life that you've lived in Jesus. You know, we, I, I love that we have Millie here. Millie is coming up to her 101st birthday. It's only, what, in a couple of weeks, Millie, right? Her 101st birthday. And you know what? She is the, she is the oldest one among us. And I guarantee you that Millie will tell you that she does not regret her life lived for Jesus Christ. For a moment, we need to stand back and see. We need to take a look at the landscape of our life when we're, when we're struggling. Should I follow the world, the shiniest of the world, or, or follow after Christ? To listen, to see uh, those who have followed Christ all of their days, they don't regret it. They find their true joy in him. In fact, as, as we go on through the course of this life, as our body begins to deteriorate, our relationship with him grows all the more and becomes all the sweeter. So that in one sense, when we are diminished, we are on the other, the other hand, we are, we, we are fruitful and we grow and our life is full of a joy that this world could never offer. Number three, and this is similar, but trust that God knows what he is doing with your life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Just want just to mention that. Look at that. Look at the heart of the person who knows Jesus. What do they want to be? They want to be with Jesus. Nobody has to like, nobody has to say to them, oh, you know, you should be spending time with Jesus. No, there's just this desire this, uh, to get to know him better. And we're all at different places in our growth. But, but deep down in our heart, there should be a sense that we want to be with him, that we want to spend time with him. Um, it's sort of like um, somebody who's dating, uh, in, in a dating relationship. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe uh, you remember when you were in a dating relationship, or maybe somebody in, in, in the church has someone in their family who's in a dating relationship. And uh, perhaps, perhaps as a, as a parent, you, you you never have to go to that person and say, you know, you really should spend a little more time with Bobby, right? Right? They're in this dating relationship. They 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 can't get enough of spending time with each other. So it is in a relationship with Christ. It's the impulse of our heart. It's a, it, it's the, it's a desire that God has placed there because we, we know him as the, as the living king, the, the true savior, the, 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 the one who has made us and designed us to live in communion with him. A.W. Tozer, one of my favorite um, writers, he's with the Lord. He, he talked about six marks of a person who knows Jesus. Number one, accept his friends as my friends. To be perfectly willing to allow others to make me their enemy for Christ's sake. To commit that wherever he leads, I will follow. A willingness to accept Christ's rejection as my rejection. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to allow the world to reject you? Would you still follow Jesus even if they do that? There's a lot of peer pressure in the world. Number five, to accept his future as my future. That's a beautiful one to think. Not just for the future, but for the here and now. 
It means hard choices. It, may, it means decisions that we have to make in our own life. What does God want for me in my future? Not just in eternity, but now. What kinds of priorities does he want in my life? And finally, his life is my life. If you've experienced that life in him, you know that there's no greater life. If there's anyone here who's never come to that place where you've experienced it, where you've turned from